I have a vivid memory of being alone at my computer. And, and this is one of those moments where I realized as a group, we hadn't deter made any determination about what the hallway was going to look like. And I just remember writing like, it's a long white hallway that turns into another long white hallway. And being like, yeah, that sounds parent. That's, that's paranoid. Hello, friend. You're listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's Mr. Robot podcast. This week, we'll talk a little bit about that Pwn phone appearance and interview one of the writers of this week's Mr. Robot, Lucy Teitler. Ars Technica's Nathan Matthijs here. You're listening to Decrypted. A lot happened on this week's episode of Mr. Robot. But the infosec and hacking nerds that follow the show must have rejoiced at one moment in particular. Pony Express Pwn Phone. A phone loaded with 103 network monitoring and attack tools. A dream device for pen testers and hackers. His name is Shun. Shun's boss is White Rose, who helped us bring down Evil Corp. Shun and his people wanted the femme to sell. Why? I don't know. But soon we'll know everything. We're hacking soon. While anyone could kind of understand, oh, Elliot's using a Linux operating system, or he's implementing hacks on big data centers using a Raspberry Pi, Mr. Robot took their hacking to another level when they relied upon the Pwn phone. This is the hipster version of hacking tools that only the most with it infosec and security people know about. The device is essentially a phone that is tailor-made for penetration testing. It is not something you want to give to your mother, sister, brother, or possibly even use yourself. We've done several things with the Pwn phone around Ars Technica, including reviewing some of the prior iterations and setting up a partnership with NPR where we spied on a reporter as if we were the NSA for a week-long period. So when we saw the device pop up on screen, we knew we wanted to talk to the folks at Pony Express, the company behind the phone. Pony Express's Dimitri Vlakos and Yolanda Smith were kind enough to let me sit in on a conference call with Sean Gallagher, where they talked about all things this week's Pwn Phone on Mr. Robot. Up first, just how did their device land on the show? The reach out was very much, hey, we, we know and love Pony. We really would love to use, you know, one of your devices. The, you know, they definitely identified which device, the Pwn Phone, in, in Season 2. You know, so it started very, you know, high-level vague like that. You know, we said yes, and we started that discussion. And then they were very clear to us about, you know, the level of information we had was, hey, Elliot will use the Pwn phone for a, you know, a hack on a SIM card. But that was kind of the level early on. And we were really asked to, you know, if we communicated at all, which we were very tight coordination with um, the people from the show in terms of keeping that tight lift even internally here. You know, I very much kept it tight. We definitely let people know we were going to be on the show, but, you know, we coordinated with them that if anyone, if we were going to leak anything, it was that, hey, F Society is going to use something from Pony to very much, you know, keep it away from the fact that, one, it's Elliot, you know, and to anything about how they were going to use it. So it was very much about, hey, F Society is going to be using a Pony device, and we really kept that close to the chest. So they do a really good job, I think, of really keeping that stuff close and tight because they realize how much of a spoiler it is. For example, you got to see the trailer, the preview, you know, we didn't. Our, our engineers that actually built this thing and that have been, you know, kind of uh, working on this 
in, in, in up in our office in Vermont and a lot of times what we find is that you know you when from an engineering perspective you build something and it, it gets out into the world and you you, you hope it, it landed right. the way the way you, you want it to. But for them to have this kind of feedback and this kind of reception, you can't believe how fired up those guys are. Now beyond whether or not a device is portrayed accurately in a work of fiction, sometimes companies still have hesitation about their products being put in, well, let's call them compromising situations. As an example, think about the show Mad Men. You know, Don Draper is out there, frankly, abusing alcohol. And if you are a distiller or another type of liquor brand, do you want your product to be what this man is drinking when he then goes and does something damaging? The same could be thought of for these tech products showing up on Mr. Robot. Do you want your device out in the world where people are thinking of it first as whatever Elliot used to hack, say, the Dark Army. Oh, we were definitely aware of Mr. Robot. I think, you know, security is an interesting industry, right? Pony has a lot of respect by the community, and we definitely know that there's this line, like, do, we, do we condone criminal hacking? No, but do we absolutely believe that the notion of breaking stuff for the for the sake of learning and discovering vulnerabilities so you can patch them and protect yourself. We think that's an integral part of security. And we think Mr. Robot, you know, it's the show. We also think it does a really good job of showing people what the, you know, real type of hacks are out there. And for us, you know, devices, you know, our whole, sure, we started as a pen testing company with devices, but we're really more now about detecting all these devices in and around enterprises. And we think they're a central and really one of the easiest ways to get into companies. And we think that Mr. Robot is showing that front and center in ways that is really hard to show. So I think that's where we think it's a great fit. Is it on that edge of, hey, it's being used for hacking? Yeah, but we, I think, we, one, we get people see it's, it's a show, and two, it's an interesting aspect of the industry. Finally, this being Ars Technica and all, we wanted to know about the feasibility of what we saw with the Pone Phone this week. Joining me on the call was IT editor Sean Gallagher, and he's working on a piece that goes in-depth on just what we saw on screen in terms of Pone Phone usage and that program, CardSim. So when he put the question to the Pone Phone people, it turns out that like most of the hacks on Mr. Robot, there's a strong dosage of reality. I'm interested in sort of whether you were involved in all in consulting on what the possibility of something like this uh, this attack tool was was I mean it's obviously not out in the wild right now but it's supposed to be something that he wrote that that Elliot wrote but could you talk a little bit about how credible that type of a tool is and and what would have to go into it Sure. So, so you know, let's let's take it at at a sort of a high level and and then just drill down into it. So, the hack that Elliot actually did, or you know, what they depicted in the show, was that they they had this SIM card, they ran crack SIM on it, um, they were able to then clone it, um, and then use that to eavesdrop into uh, in, into another conversation persistently, right? So there's a couple pieces to that hack that that are that are some are plausible and some are definitely true and some are okay that's you know some some dramatic license there, right? The first I would say on the crack sim piece that's actually that's actually plausible. There was some research done at Black Hat last year where they actually demonstrated that you could actually crack a sim card in about 10 minutes. 
Um, we can certainly uh, provide you with a little bit more of those details in, in writing, but I'll tell you what they were able to do there was do, rather than brute force uh, attacking it, they actually looked at the entropy surrounding the SIM card itself in order to be able to pick up things like, you know, how, how, it's, how it's actually communicating, what's actually, you know, what bits and bytes are actually flying across the, the chip there. So that is absolutely plausible. Now, the timing of it, I think, is, is what is the, the, the dramatic license part, right? Everything we've seen so far is showing, you know, between one and, and ten minutes on the, the crack sim capability at, at a technical level. However, what they showed in the show was it, it did in like five seconds. So that's some dramatic license there. Flip side of the coin is, okay, once I've cloned this sim card, could I actually then use it to then go and eavesdrop on someone's active conversation. And, and in, in my view, and in looking at all the research that I've seen so far, um, that's, 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 that's some dramatic licensing there. Because um, you can only have one uh, IMEI active at a time. We saw this recently with the activist D-Ray, who had his SIM card uh, essentially cloned and stolen, and he was unable to receive calls. The only way he figured that out was that he, he actually couldn't receive calls, and, and, and someone had uh, actually taken over his, his account. So for them to be able to actually listen on a conversation off of a cloned SIM card, that's a little bit fuzzy there, right? Because you can't have two active uh, IMEIs going at the same time. Coming up, our interview with Mr. Robot staff writer Lucy Teitler. But first... Word from our corporate overlords! I'm making my way through the 90s right now. Nearly finished with Mad About You. You know, my man Paul Reiser, he, he just doesn't get the credit he deserves. Man, it's spectacular. Phenomenal. As a journalist, I secretly think one of the things we collectively dream about is writing some giant creative piece of work. Whether that's a book, which a lot of journalists do, or a screenplay, which less journalists do, Lucy Teitler has achieved it. She's an infosec and security journalist working with Motherboard, who, after season one of Mr. Robot, managed to work her way into the writer's room on season two. And as a new staff writer, no pressure, but her writing assignment this year was to handle this week's episode where the big reveals and explanation came out about what was going on with Elliot in prison. The day after her episode aired, Lucy was kind enough to give us some time to talk about everything from what the process of the Mr. Robot's writer's room looks like, to her favorite scenes from this week, and to talk about some of the writing muscles that transfer whether you're doing journalism, writing for Mr. Robot, or, as she also recently did, writing a stage play that premiered in New York City. Okay, joining us this week on the podcast, I've got Lucy Teitler, who is the staff writer on Mr. Robot, responsible for this week's episode. Lucy, thanks for taking some time out of your day. Hello, hi, thank you for having me. It is a big honor. One, obviously, because you work on a show I admire, but it's great to talk to someone who is also in the technical and infosec journalism world. So we'll get into that in a little bit, but very exciting okay, to chat with you. Can't wait Cool. to well, get into that. <laughs> I have lots of questions, and I think it is best to start with the episode that just aired. You know, sure. I know you're a new staff writer for season two. Do you feel any pressure when you get your episode assignment? 
And it happens to be the one where we finally get the fallout of what's been going on with Elliot in prison. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I co-wrote the episode with Kyle Bradstreet, so it was really great to be able to share that responsibility with someone. I think the, the funny thing is the way that the writer's room works is that you don't find out which episode you're writing until we've outlined them all together. Ah. And so there's, you know, you're sort of, you're angling to try and get an episode or another. You're sort of like, oh, I think that I could really do a good job on this one. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to try and position myself. And, you know, and I mean, I think everyone is doing a little bit of that, but you basically don't know, which really helps in terms of taking the pressure off at the outset. And also in terms of making sure that everyone is committing their full creative capacity to each episode because no one knows which one they're going to end up alone in a room with a computer with. <laughs> and so, so that's the first way to answer that, which is that the way that the system is set up kind of diffuses the pressure at the outset. And then the second is to say that it was like a real opportunity. I mean, I, I think that it's a, a challenge to be able to tell an important part of the story that we know that fans have been waiting, waiting to hear. <laughs> and so you, you just hope that, you just want to be able to do that in a way that's going to be satisfying, answer the question, and then also be interesting to watch. And so I think when when Kyle and I were going over that initial, that first sequence, the credit sequence about mm -hmm. what really happened, a lot of the moments that were the most fun for us were the small details, like Leon talking about mad about you, <laughs> <laughs> and or like the grandma porn that people were were into in jail, and these little character moments. So because we had already decided at the beginning of the season what was going to happen, like what the answer was, who was yeah. behind the door, we already knew that. And, and I think that happens a lot with writing the show is that the the big questions that the fans are obsessed with are things that we all decide and then we write from those are foundational for us mm -hmm. and so the part that feels like the real the individual pressure is on is in the the way that the scenes are written so so for instance in this episode like you said you know the prison details pretty strongly and maybe you know something you know going further in the episode like um you know we're gonna get those realizations that elliot has been acting without being conscious about it because Mr. Robot's been meddling. And those are things you know, but then the execution really comes down to in this episode you and Kyle. Yeah. And I mean and even some and some of the major plot points do end up getting determined late in the process. Just cuz someone comes up with a great idea or you have to work backwards after you make a decision for something that happens in a later episode. So I so we definitely went into the episode knowing who had been behind the door, but all of the the second part that you mentioned mm -hmm. about Mr. Robot's machinations in stage two was something that we, all of us, worked out along the way. Now, does that happen before you have to sit down and, you know, it, put pen to paper is the metaphor, but get on your keyboard and bang out this script? Or are you constantly kind of having to revisit the script because a good idea comes up in the writer's room? It's both. Okay. It's like you end up... Every, everybody works together and makes an outline. It's a long and detailed outline. And then you go off like to your, with your pen and paper <laughs> or your pencil and your dictation device or just your, your anxiety, your coffee, yeah. your self, your coping mechanisms. And you have something. And you, when the first assignment is to write the script that is most, that's your, your best version of what is there on the outline. 
what sort of what everyone agreed on. And there are and sometimes there are moments where there's a lot of freedom, like what's in the outline is pretty is pretty small, just not not that detail oriented. And sometimes there are times where there's so much exposition or there's so much there are so many things that need to get across in a scene that it sort of feels like it's already written for that first draft. Then everybody brings, and then you bring it back into the room. Or for Kyle and I exchanged scenes. And so, and we did that just between the two of us. And we talked and we read each other's bits and then we rewrote different sections. And then we bring the full writer's draft into the room. And that's when we get a, a bunch of notes. And then we do another draft based on those notes. And then Sam will make changes. And then it comes back to us. So in that it's our responsibility to keep the script up to date in terms of plot changes that happen for the whole course of the season. So if something changes in episode four that then makes episode eight different, we change, we keep track of that. Or if something happens in episode 10 that reverberates backwards into episode eight. So this sounds like, you know, the most rigorous editing process you could come across, you know, perhaps a little bit different than the journalism world where the, the timing and the deadlines and stuff don't always necessarily allow for something like that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think it's half, it's partly editing and then it's partly just rewriting on the spot based on new information. And that is the part that just, that doesn't usually happen with a journalism story. If you write something, I mean, it can, but normally if there's something that's evolving, you just write another piece and link back. Back to the episode, you said that the first time you got to see it was last night. And I was wondering, you know, what, yeah. was, your what was your reaction to it? My understanding with the way TV in general is made, you know, sometimes changes are even being made in the editing suites and in post-production. So were there things that kind of surprised you when you finally got to see it, you know, as a living, breathing entity? Yeah, there were. I'd seen dailies, some dailies. I think what pleased me was to see how much the tense paranoia atmosphere really <laughs> came across. This sort of thing, like I have a vivid memory of being alone at my computer. And, and this is one of those moments where I realized as a group, we hadn't made any determination about what the hallway was going to look like. Where Angela was going to have that conversation with the person at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And I just remember writing like, it's a long white hallway that turns into another long white hallway being like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds parent. That's, that's paranoid. That sounds like in keeping with the tense style that we're going with here. And, and that was really great to see. And I think in general, sort of something like the brownouts, mm -hmm. which when you talk about on the page, you're not sure how they're going to come across. And they did. And then of course, most of all the way that the glitches in the Elliot robot, consciousness <laughs> were so beautifully realized in cinema and that was something that i couldn't see until post-production oh i would i would imagine that's extremely hard to describe on the page and it really is a collaborative process with people throughout people who are shooting people who are editing to figure out what what those glitches need to be when they come to life yeah and and when we were working on it i think i at least had some anxiety that it was going to look like what we wanted it to look like <laughs> And it, it, I mean, it completely did. When I've in the past reported and talked to, I don't know, sports figures or uh, non-journalism writers, and they put something out into the world, some of them will then kind of avoid the reception just because they don't want to <laughs> see both the good and the venom and, you know, what, what way that teeters. Have you been finding yourself peeking at Twitter and subreddits and, you know, critical reviews today just to kind of see how the episode is being received out in the world? Yeah. 
I, for sure, I'm not someone who, I'm always curious to see how people understand what you do. I think it's, it's a way to learn and grow just sort of as a person. And I think that one of the things that's really struck me is the way that the, the reviewers of Mr. Robot, sometimes like whether they're happy or not, really get what's going on. And that, and, and so, and I think that's, that's a real privilege to see. I, I really enjoyed myself live on Twitter last night, for instance, <laughs> you know, with people like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Those sort of immediate audience responses and then the crit- critical reviews I was reading. And it's very, one of the things I love about the show is that it really engages viewers to make guesses about what's going on. It's, it's so interactive in that way, like imaginatively, it's almost like a game. Because you know that what you're seeing is not quite real. And so you become highly sensitized to every detail that you're getting. And it's, it's sort of like there are no accidents kind of thing. And so I think it encourages the viewers to be really creative themselves. And it's, very, it's fascinating to read the threads about what people think might be going on, some of which are really prescient, others of which are things we talked about and then didn't do. And some of them are just completely off the wall, <laughs> but, but, but there's no, in, in a way there's no, it's not necessary that the off the wall ones are wrong because some of the things we, we do are just as insane. And I, and I love the way that the show frees people up in that way. Cause as a viewer myself, one of my favorite things to do is to make predictions about what's going to happen. It's just a way that I've always enjoyed suspense entertainment. And so it's nice to be able to work on giving that experience to other viewers. Oh, totally. I, when I talked to Corhadana, he just described it as he feels like this is one of the first shows that really allows the viewers to hack into the experience, kind of what you were just describing. You're interacting with the show in ways that are unusual for a television show to allow for. I, I read the AV Club review this morning, and the little notes at the bottom are you know, identifying things like, you know, it's probably not a coincidence Elliot was in jail for 86 days. Or, you know, the time on Elliot's mom's clock is stuck at this and it probably means something. And mm-hmm. that is a different level of engagement and interaction than most shows on television, if not almost every other show on television. Right. And I think it's because the shows come out at this moment where television is evolving so quickly into a different mode of entertainment, where people are just as likely, if not more likely, to watch it all at once as they are to wait um, and watch it on consecutive weeks. And so people's expectations are a little different. And I think, and Mr. Robot has really been able to galvanize and take advantage of that structural change in the viewership. And because when you're watching things episode after episode after episode, you expect the whole season to have an arc and not just for each episode to have one. And you expect that each episode will have that that you can watch five in a row and not feel a sense of repetition or a sense that wait the first one was just as exciting as the last one which is an insane challenge i think we know now that people are watching television in watching five years of television in a marathon week and so i think that with that knowledge and the freedom that USA has been generous enough to give the creative team on Mr. Robot, we've Sam has visu- begun to visualize Mr. Robot as one big story, 
with one section that goes in this direction and another section that goes in that direction. And so all of season two is one leg of that story. And it makes for a different kind of viewing experience that episode to episode feels only subtly different, but when you zoom all the way back, looks really different. Yeah, I I think one of the coolest or most enjoyable, I should say, experiences that I've had with Mr. Robot is when I decided to just rewatch season one in a chunk. And what you just talked about really came to life for me, that you could see the big picture thought that goes into it. And even season one ultimately will just be one you know, chapter or, or pick your iteration in a larger piece. And I'll, you know, if you binge the entire series in a couple of years down the road, you're going to get an even different experience, which is, like you said, mind-blowing. It really gives a different challenge to you and the rest of the writer's room. Yeah, well, because the challenge and the potential of serialized entertainment in general is that each iteration can enrich what's already there. Well, let me let me give you, I got two more quick questions about this week's episode, if you don't mind. And Bring it on! <laughs> <laughs> a softball one for you first. You know, as someone who's in that writer's room and getting into the mind's of what's happening, the minds of the people and the nitty gritty of what's happening. I'm wondering what were your favorite, did you have a favorite scene that you wrote last night? And was there a character you enjoyed getting into the mind of more than anyone else? I'm really pleased with the scene with Angela and Dom when Dom comes to Angela's apartment. There are these two characters who we've gotten to know who are structurally, because of the way the plot's been going, at odds with one another. But we know that they would actually, they actually, if they could just trust each other for a minute, it would be to the benefit of both. And I think that was a really interesting dynamic and really fun to work with. And in general, I guess I, the arcs of all of the characters I relate to and care about in a lot of different ways. But I do think that Angela's arc this season has been one that I especially love because I think in terms of what my answer to the previous question about how you build upon what you've already established. Mm -hmm. And in the first season, Angela, more than any of the other characters was sort of normal. She's not, I mean, she's not totally normal. I mean, whatever. And I, of course I put normal in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean is that she's not part, she's not a member of an extreme sub subculture and she's, and her values are portrayed as, mainstream or average or however and I think even though and then at the end of season one she shows that she actually has this grand drive for justice and for personal ambition both of which were really interesting and I think what you see in season two with her and and what I am really interested in is the way that she's becoming more conscious of how people underestimate her and using it that's what makes her she starts becoming more of a hacker not only because she's literally hacking but because she's having more of an understanding of how to manipulate the world for her own ends based on the misconceptions that other people are making about her she's like the most effective social engineer that i've seen it's awesome to watch right. her you know she kind of learns it when she's navigating that FBI employee a couple weeks back at the, the setup they have in the E-Corp. And then she really does well this time around when she's caught and just kind of goes along with, oh, yeah, I'm Monica, the, the yeah. secretary or whatever. And 
it doesn't phase her this time around. She's comfortable in that world. Right. And, and I mean, I think there are some sort of like feminist jokes in that, in that like all women have to socially engineer constantly to avoid unwanted attention <laughs> at, in the case of her FBI hack. And then in the, in last night's episode, she's just mistake. She's mistaken for another young yep. white woman with blonde hair, because that's all that, that people see when they see her. And so she's able to turn that around into a strength. And as a result, becomes so much more powerful than anyone ever expects. Around the R's slack, for what it's worth, she's everyone's uh, most interesting favorite character in season two. And people like have tried to make arguments. She is the center of the show now. And, you know, so anytime you get Angela on scene, especially some of those later scenes you described, her in the hallway or her with Dom, it's electric television. Yeah. I mean, Angela is my girl. <laughs> I, and and Portia is incredible this season. Just like the electric television is exactly the way that I would describe the her performance, which is so tense. Yeah, she she's been phenomenal. I, I want to ask at least one more question about last night's episode. And because I work for Ars Technica, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the tech. Yeah. And so I'm wondering what. The you know the the big tech from last night was we got to see uh, a phone phone out in the real world being mm-hmm. used in a major way, and I'm wondering what the experience of incorporating that into the script is like for you because I know that's a big initiative for the for for Cordana and his tech consultants to research this stuff and pitch ideas, but you know when it comes to you as the writer, uh, what's the experience of incorporating that and and breathing life into it like? Well. When I started writing for Motherboard, I mean, when I started writing about hacking and privacy issues for Motherboard, it was because I had become really fascinated with the effects, the narrative effects of tech. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. Rather than the actual logistics of how a phone phone works, Hmm. what, what implications there are about the fact that there is one, like how do we change, how do we change or not change the way that we live, knowing that everything we do electronically is possibly legible to somebody. Knowing that there is a, there's a little asterisk in it. Every text you send, every email you send, whether someone has a possibility of reading it now or later, and it's that, that there's that double consciousness. And I think that that, and it's both for things that are malicious like getting hacked or things that are just bureaucratic like being sued or just logistical like I lost my phone and someone picked it up and so I spend a lot of time thinking about scenarios that involve that chasm between a perception of privacy and the reality of connectivity and so I loved writing about the pone phone because of the issues and the themes. Mm. And I think it was, it's so fun to be able to take your paranoia about these ideas, which basically have no real function. Cause it's not like it keeps me from writing emails or sending texts really <laughs> doesn't keep me from doing anything for a while. I, I was not connecting to wireless networks other than at my own home because I'd been too besieged with anecdotes about pineapples and whatever. But, but I ended up kind of resuming that sort of reckless behavior as well. And so, but, and in real life, if you want to have a normal connected technological life, you just put yourself at risk for these things. And the paranoia is basically an idea. 
And so it's wonderful to be able to put that paranoia into creative, or the creative outlet of writing for Mr. Robot and creating <laughs> entertainment that that addresses these things. And the fact that we know that that core keeps things technologically exactly accurate just makes them more dramatically interesting. And the stakes are that much higher because someone watching this who has no idea that these sort of technological effects are a reality is shocked by that as well as the twists and turns of the drama. The way that the tech functions in the show and how it works on multiple levels regardless of the viewer's background knowledge is one of the the best things about Mr. Robot for me. It goes to what you say. It works on a narrative level and it, as well as a technological and awareness level. And if it didn't work on the narrative level, none of that other stuff would matter. Right. It's about like authenticity. Because I think that that's the thing is that the reality of the situation, the authentic reality is what is scary in a lot of ways. And so it makes sense that it works on a narrative level because narratively it's scary. Well, let me, I've got, if you have time, two more questions for you at sure. least. Uh, just kind of general questions because I think you have a really interesting background. Um, you know, you were a fellow journalist who saw the show yes. and kind of adopted a really hacker ethos to kind of go out, find a way to get in contact with the people making it, show the body of work and the fact that you had been working in kind of creative and narrative fiction before, and it's panned out completely for you. Um so, you know, first of all, congratulations on that because it's an awesome, I mean, could you have ever imagined you were working on the show even a year ago? No. <laughs> I mean, I could Im Im imagine the way I Im imagine a lot of scenarios involving, like, you know, good outcomes, <laughs> but that doesn't make them realistic. Well, you know, coming from a journalism background, I, I want to ask, do you miss the journalism world at all or i know you had you know you were dabbling in fiction at the time as well but does this show in particular just kind of give you a nice perhaps blend of the two because it does involve a lot of like you said real world implications that you're putting to the page even if it is fiction you are furthering the conversation on security like you might have been as a security mm -hmm. journalist yeah, I mean, I think the thing about journalism, and I'm definitely still doing that, because the great thing about Mr. Robot is if you work in the writer's room, you're employed for half the year. Cool. What I love most about journalism is being able to do things, like actually feel like, I mean, when my interactions with the tech world, sometimes before I started working on Mr. Robot, sometimes actually felt a little bit like Angela's, <laughs> <laughs> Angela's arc this season. Being not a tech person and throwing myself into these situations with hackers and trying to figure out what was going on. And, and I think the activeness of reporting is something that can't be replaced with a writer's room. The sense of investigating and, and being a single entity on the hunt for truth, <laughs> um, to, you know, to put it. A, a bit grandly, but I think it, even if it doesn't end up that way, that is what animates a lot of reporting. But I think, but what you say about the ideas is complete, completely true. I think that more people, for sure, no doubt, more people are watching Mr. <laughs> Robot and having conversations about these topics based on Mr. Robot than ever were based on my motherboard pieces. Sure. I mean, Ars Technica too. It's just a more weighty cultural entity that people are talking about whether or not they read 
tech journalism uh, tech journalism at all mm-hmm. yeah and and i think that tech journalism can be difficult because they're i mean you can well i guess this is the the same with mr robot as you can get intimidated by the technical language and say oh wait this isn't for me but i think entertainment just by the its nature is more accessible and draws people in and you can learn I mean, for instance, the scene where Mobley is teaching Angela how how to hack the FBI. So much of his dialogue is is specific and totally incomprehensible to the <laughs> to, to, I mean to, to the to the general viewer. And yet, in watching that scene, the viewer is able to discern Mobley is trying to teach Angela how to do the steps that will result in her being able to gain access to these networks and the general summary is another way to explain that you don't need to understand the specifics of Mobley's direction in order to get what the hacking can do (laughs) but then for people who do understand those logistics there's added pleasure so I think Mr. Robot is able to work on all of those different levels whereas just by its nature when you're just when you're describing when you're reporting on something, you're just re- reporting on that thing. Yeah, all the all the details have to be there, no doubt about it. Yeah, but I totally let's say I de- I miss it and love it enough that I'm still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, and you know, like like the smartest of journalists uh, around us, you've got consistent work all the time, which is the most important. Thing. Well, you know, knock on wood. Right, right, I, right we're right. all. I mean, you know, essentially, like I I think writers are freelance. Yeah. You know, so it's just, yeah. You and, and you just try and keep your, I just try and keep interested in what I'm, what I'm doing. That's always been the, the principle that's driven my like serpentine and eccentric <laughs> writing career so far. It seems like a good guiding light. It kind of leads to what I want to, you know, for our closing question here. I'm amazed that you, one, you're keeping up with journalism. Two, you're working on a super huge TV show and Three, you're doing it while you just opened a play in New York. And so, again, kudos to you. And second, can you tell me a little bit about that? And if you have felt, besides the this guiding light principle of follow your interests, you know, are there are there writing muscles that are consistent between those three things? I thought a lot about th- – well, my, my play is superficially really different from Mr. Robot because it's, it's a – comedy and it takes and it with a female protagonist and its situation is a recurring series of sort of like endless engagement parties and And, so and it just sorry just to break in it's called engagements and it's running in new york now if anybody is in the city and interested it actually the run is over oh no no (laughs) but i if anybody just thought to themselves oh i want to go see it then you know Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, hopefully, there'll there'll be another one soon. In a lot of ways, to me, engagements is a th- a psychological thriller that that cloaks itself in comedy, and it has this narrative function of soliloquies, where the main character is telling the audience what's <laughs> going on in in her head. the The subject of the play, in a lot of ways, is the way that characters want to that people want to decide what play they're in and and the main character is kind of like i'm in a comedy ha 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 even though all of these pretty dark 
things are happening as a result of a lot of her psychological unresolved feelings. And I think that in some ways that is thematically linked to Mr. Robot too, of course. I mean, the idea of like, how are the things that occupy ourselves psychologically and our blocks and the way that we cope and deflect, how does that affect the story that we're in? And do we know what story we're in? And I think kind of, for me, I, using genre to answer large questions about being is a major muscle for me as a writer. And I actually think that was true of my journalism in some way too, that I would be like, what's going on with Michael Osman is, hmm. is doing hardware hacking to recreate NSA tools that people in the NSA don't even know how to make because the catalog was released through illegal means. Like that is so crazy. <laughs> the gray areas are so intense. I have to try, like, obviously this is something beyond which I can get to the bottom of in 2000 words, but I'm going to try and I'm going to expose the seams of how I tried to get to the bottom of it as a way of engaging the, the readership in the process. And so that, because it's, and kind of a sense of like, I don't know any more about this than, than you do. And so I feel like all of those things, I'm obviously, I'm speaking really abstractly and generally right now, but I think if I had to connect the journalism and the play and Mr. Robot, it would be those interests in the way that showing the seams of things gets at, gets at the deeper questions of what they are. Well, it, it, it certainly makes for compelling fiction and compelling journalism. I, I haven't seen the play <laughs> so. yet, but you know, if, if oh. uh, your track record comes across, I'm sure the play e uh, equally executes. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Hey, uh, anytime, Lucy. I really appreciate your time today. Those were all the questions I have, and I don't want to keep you any longer. But thank you so much for cutting some time out of what is an exciting 24 hours for you. I, I hope you can continue to go back and enjoy the fruits of your labor and all the success that Writer's Room has had this season. Thank you. I'll get back to my Twitter hashtags. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. That's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks this week go out to the folks at Pwnphone who were kind enough to chat with us about the experience of appearing on Mr. Robot. And of course, to Lucy Teitler, who was kind enough to take time out of her week to discuss this week's episode. All the music you heard on this episode of Decrypted comes from the Audio Network, who provides the sounds for all of our podcasts at Ars Technica. Make sure you're following Decrypted wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or directly through RSS. If you got questions, comments, or thoughts, feel free to reach out to us, either through the Ars Technica forums or via email, social at arstechnica.com. Just put Mr. Robot in the subject line. Until next time. Nice little Petraeus email scam you got going on there. You shouldn't get hot and heavy with your presiding judges, Suze. <laughs>